Right. Judges chapter 12, like Pastor said, uh, the code of Bushido that he mentioned, it's the uh, samurai warrior's code of conduct. There are, depending on where you look it up, seven or eight items, almost all of which, by the way, are directly pulled from the book of Proverbs. In fact, almost direct quote. And no one's actually entirely sure how the ancient Japanese got the Bible. But at some point, part of the Bible got there. And it's kind of intriguing how that ties in there. Um, and it's, it's pretty cool. So there's going to be a lot of, lot of intriguing opportunity. Uh, we would appreciate any and all help that we can possibly have. Does anybody know? Here's a completely random, completely useless fact. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anybody know when the last living samurai was still practicing? It was during the Civil War. By the way, that was around the same time that the fax machine was invented. So there's a very weird possibility that a samurai could have sent a fax to Abraham Lincoln. It didn't happen, but it's a really cool thing to think about if you're a nerd like me. Okay, Judges chapter 12. Last week we ended up with finishing the account of Jephthah. Uh, a great, the Bible calls him a mighty man of valor. If you look in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, he is considered a man of great faith. Um, very intriguing end to his storyline there. But in Judges chapter 12 here, the last half of this chapter, we are introduced to three minor judges. Anybody remember why we call them minor judges? We just literally don't know much about them. One of these guys is in one to two verses, most of them. So they're considered minor, not because God considered them minor, but for whatever reason, we just don't know much about them, okay? Um, so let's just jump into verse 8 here. <clears throat> Excuse me. And after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel, and he had 30 sons and 30 daughters. I thought four was enough. Holy cow. Whom he sent abroad and took in 30 daughters from abroad for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years then died Ibsen and was buried in Bethlehem. Hey, here's a couple of intriguing notes. This is not the same Bethlehem that you and I regularly think of. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, uh, David, this is not the same Bethlehem. And I know a few of you are going to get all mad at me, but if you'd actually turn with me to the book of Joshua chapter 19, I believe I can prove it. Joshua chapter 19. Okay? I live in Meriden, Connecticut. Does anybody know the other state in the United States that has a Meriden? Kansas. There's a Meriden, Kansas. Hey, Wallingford. There are seven Wallingfords in the world. There are multiple places. Why is it that every town in the world seems to have a Main Street named Main Street? Couldn't we have come up with any other name? Do you know that like almost every major town in Connecticut has a First Baptist Church? Why is there no second or third or fourth? I mean, who really wants to go to Fifth Baptist Church? We are the lowest ranked Baptist church in this town. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. But the idea of having multiple names for towns being the same, are we okay? You do realize that at this point, Israel was at one of its largest, as far as physical territorial sizes in its history. Having multiple towns with the same name wasn't really a problem because Bethlehem... David was from what tribe? Judah. This Bethlehem's not. Okay, if you're looking at Judges chapter 9, or Joshua 19, look at, down at verse 15. This is in the tribe of Zebulun. Verse 15, it says, And Katah, and Nahalal, and Shimron, and Idalah, and Bethlehem, 12 cities with their villages. This is just a different Bethlehem. Are we okay? And by the way, if you follow along with Jewish history, and we do need to account for that because they're the people that are keeping record of the people that are alive during this time period. 
Ibzan was not part of Judah. The Jewish people have one of the greatest genealogies as far as detailed records of their history of any group of human beings in, in the world. Uh, we can actually trace my genealogy, not so much yours, but through mom, all the way back into the parts of the 14th and 15th century. Uh, my grandmother has a copy of a couple of old books where somebody has actually got detailed handwritten records of genealogies going back uh, to like some Vikings and a whole bunch of other pretty cool stuff like that. On my dad's side, uh, Grandma, Grandma Bish had uh, genealogy dates back to the Black Clan in Scotland and Ireland. So we, some of us can trace our genealogy back, but for the most part, most of our stops somewhere between 14 and 1500. Why? Because nobody could write before that and keeping record of that was quite difficult. The Jewish people have been keeping record of their history since basically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they can tell you who they're related to all the way back, which is, by the way, nuts. That's absolutely nuts. Ibzan is not from the tribe of Judah. He's from the tribe of Zebulun. This guy, the other thing of note here is the sheer amount of kids this guy had. 30 sons and 30 daughters. Christmas must have been really expensive. Okay, they didn't have Christmas. I know a few of you just got really upset there, okay? This is a lot, but the Bible gives us an intriguing note about him whom he sent abroad, that would be his daughters, and took in 30 daughters from abroad for his sons. Ibzan, for his part, made a whole bunch of, the idea of these being from abroad, he made a whole bunch of political allies. He was trying to ensure Israel's peace as long as possible. Unfortunately for him, it didn't last long because he judged Israel seven years. Look at verse 11. And after him, Elon. This is not the Musk. This is not the one that owns Twitter or Tesla. Right? After him, Elon, a Zebulonite, judged Israel. And he judged Israel 10 years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried in Ajalon in the country of Zebulon. Anybody know any other details about this guy? No, there's nothing. We don't know any other details other than he was from Zebulun and we know where he was buried and he judged Israel for 10 years. For whatever reason, God chose not to give us any details. You do realize that even though this guy, 36, 3,700 years later, we can't give you any information on him. God knows exactly who he is and what he did because God's keeping record. The world today, we're obsessed with people remembering who we are, building a legacy, but can I be honest? It doesn't matter if everybody else remembers who we are as long as God knows who we are. That's all that really matters. Because he's keeping record and his record doesn't go away. And his record's the only one that matters because when we spend eternity with him, his record is where everything is judged by. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Look at verse 13. We're going to finish this chapter. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, a Pyrathonite, judged Israel. And he had 40 sons and 30 nephews that rode on three score and 10 ass colts. And he judged Israel eight years. And Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pyrathonite, died and was buried in Pyrathon in the land of Ephraim in the Mount of the Amalekites. So this guy's got more sons. And the Bible also gives us some, for whatever reason, some intriguing information here about his nephews that rode on these donkeys, these 30, three score and 10, so 70 ascolts. We had one for each one. This kind of gives us a, a little bit of an idea of how rich this guy was. He was able to afford a donkey for all of his sons and all of his nephews to ride on. That was an uncommon thing during this era, which gives us the idea that Abnon was extremely wealthy. It also, there are 
some possible implications here that these young men, these 70 young men, may have actually helped him. Okay, if they're riding on these donkeys, he may have actually put them in like, hey, spread this information to everybody else. Think about it. It's either walking or riding a donkey. Riding a donkey is going to get you there faster than walking, correct? So if he needs to share information, he can do so more effectively than some of the others before him. Does that make sense? So there's some possible implications there. He's only a judge for eight years, but what, is else, what else is intriguing here is there's a possibility that he may have been an ancestor to somebody else famous in your Bible. Kind of a minor character, if you will, in your Bible, but not any less important. Go to 2 Samuel. Abdon was the son of Hillel, and the Bible tells us repeatedly here he was a Pyrathonite. He was buried in Pyrathon. Right, which is a town somewhere in Ephraim. And there's a, there's a relatively important human being that's from this same town. 2 Samuel 23, look at verse 30. In this list here in 2 Samuel 23, you're seeing a list of all of David's mighty men. Right? David had around 300 of these mighty men. Look at verse 30. Beniah the Pyrathonite, Hedai of the brooks of Gaash, Benaiah, by the way, ended up rising to the rank of captain of David's mighty men. If you're in a group called the mighty men and you're a captain, that makes you a pretty mighty human being, does it not? You realize what David's mighty men went through? They were fugitives from the law. They single-handedly, these roughly 300, 301 men, beat back the Philistines repeatedly in spite of Saul's failures from the same town as this judge. It's pretty intriguing. By the way, that town, Pyrathon, it's only listed those two times in your entire Bible. It's never really mentioned anywhere else, but God chose to, again, pull out this little thing and let us know, hey, it doesn't matter where you're from. If you're willing to do what I need you to do, I'll remember. All of this boils down to, are you willing? We, we, we usually look at the book of Judges and, oh, well, it's failure and punishment and then redemption. That is a huge theme here. But I think the most important thing is God lists a dozen plus human beings, men and women, that did absolutely incredible things for God because they were willing. You don't have to be special. You don't have to have skills. You don't have to have anything other than a willing heart. And God can do anything. Because here's the thing, he doesn't actually need us. He can do anything he wants without us. You do realize he spoke and things just happened. I want to know, by the way, what that sounded like. Have you ever thought of that for a split second? What did creation sound like? God talks and just like, was it bloop? I, I want to know, okay? I, I just, I, I'm weird. I want to know what that sounded like. When Jesus healed the maimed, people that were missing limbs, what did that sound like? Was it crunchy? Was it wet? Was it a mixture? He had to create new bone, new skin, new flesh. I'm a weird human. If you haven't figured that out, congratulations. Welcome to Sunday school. Okay? But God remembers who we are. And God rewards those that are willing. These people are remembered in history. Again, our culture today is obsessed with people remembering who and what we are. The, the, the Los Angeles Lakers announced this week that they're already planning on retiring LeBron James' jersey. He's been with them for five seasons, and they're going to retire his jersey. He hasn't stopped playing basketball yet, 
and they've already decided they're going to retire his jersey. Because people are obsessed with being remembered. You do realize that 20 years from now, there's going to be some new guy we're going to be talking about as the greatest of all time. Because that's how cycles work and that's how humanity works. During my generation, it was Michael Jordan. Now it's LeBron James. There's going to be another one 20 years later. Why? Because that's how human beings work. The only person that should matter, the only thing that should matter is does God remember who you are? Does God have your name written in his book? Because if your name's not in there, it doesn't matter. He's not going to remember you because you're not one of his. He takes care of his own. But at the second point to that, if your name's there, what's underneath that name? Is it literally just your name? You're written in the Lamb's book of life. You're saved and that's the extent of it. Or does he have a whole list, like even as simple as just a couple of verses? This guy did this because he was willing. Where are you at on that? I have to focus on that because there's only, you realize between verse 8 and verse 15, there's only seven or eight verses here. Three judges and you've got, let's see here, seven, ten, eight. You've got roughly, what is that, 25 years of Jewish history encapsulated in a very short amount of time. But God remembered who they were. We live our lives as a tale that is told. When we read these guys' tale, one of them takes less than 15 seconds to read his entire tale. But God chose to write it down for all of human history because he was willing to do something. So if your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, what's the tale? What's God writing down for you? And we say that because the judge who actually has more verses written about him than just about any other in this book is in chapter 13. If you jump there with me, Judges chapter 13, we're introduced to an entirely new, to kind of like a complete change of subject here. God just kind of rapid fire names off three judges here, and then he just spends the next several chapters focusing on one. And this is actually probably the one judge that, for the most part, if you've ever heard any kind of a message or a lesson on the book of Judges, this is the guy we go to, because he's probably the one that's the most like us. Why is that? Because he screws up a lot. And if you haven't ever read through Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16 and thought, huh, that sounds like something I did before, you're reading it wrong, okay? Because we do that a lot. Look at verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. This is now like the sixth or seventh time that God's actually made that statement. They've had these judges. They had Jephthah, and then they had another three judges after that. So total, they had about 32 years of peace, because according to the, the timeline, the chronology of the Word of God, it's back to back to back to back, right? Right in order. They've got this peace, and these guys die off the scene, and they go right back to doing what they were doing. These people are just like you and I. The Bible tells us that the, the, the Bible's given as in samples, examples, we do the same thing. I was driving down to the gym yesterday and there was a police officer had his lights on. Everybody starts going 55 miles an hour on Route 15. As soon as we got up over the hill past him, 75. Come on, you know you do it. I'm just driving with the flow of traffic. Sure you are. You are the flow of traffic. Everybody's following you, sir. Hey? We do the exact same stuff all the time, but we read through this book and we're like, how do these people keep screwing up over and over and over again? How many times have you been at the altar? God, forgive me for the same thing I asked you to forgive me for two days ago. 
It's the same stuff. God gave it to us because he's letting us know he's going to love us even when we're idiots. Aren't you glad? The Bible doesn't use idiot. It's somewhere in the Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. I know it's got to be in there. God's got some sarcasm to him. There's got to be some moments where he's just like, are you kidding me, Tim? You're an idiot. Actually, he's probably got mom up there telling him that now. Like, Tim's an idiot. Forgive him. It's okay. If you never heard mom say that, go back and watch live stream. It happened a lot. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. This is by far their longest captivity to this point. This is a long time. They've now been free, according with Jephthah and the three minor judges after him. They've had about 32 years of peace. Are we okay? Now they're in captivity for four decades. Outside of their time in slavery in Egypt, this is their longest portion in captivity to date. That's a long time. That's a really long time. You realize that's a long enough time. That's nearly two generations of young people have grown up in some level of captivity at this point. Meaning the guy we're about to read on here, Samson, he grew up knowing no form of freedom. Some of these others would have been born and raised in some level of peace or freedom and stepped up to maintain that. Not Samson. He was born into a world that only knew slavery and captivity. So some of Samson's story, you have to take his backstory into account here. Look at verse 2. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites. So we're introduced to another tribe here, the, the Danites, the tribe of Dan, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and bare not. So we're introduced to Manoah, okay, and his wife. Mrs. Manoah is never given a name for whatever reason in Scripture. She's talked about repeatedly in this chapter, but she is actually never given a name. I do not know why. I cannot answer that. But at the same time, this nameless woman's faith was absolutely amazing. And we're going to read up on that here in a little bit. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not. Let's pause for just a moment. Angel shows up, and the first thing he tells her is, You don't got no kids. Thank you. If that was me, or if that was some of you, it'd be like, thank you, Captain Obvious. Now, it's also an angel. Have you read the Bible descriptions of angels? Some of those guys were terrifying. Wings full of eyes. First off, are they wearing like little sunglasses when he flies? Does he have like contacts? How does he not dry those out? I don't know how that works. There's other ones that have multiple heads facing different directions. Is it any wonder that throughout the Bible, people fell down in fear when an angel showed up? They're scary. By the way, she's one of the few here that doesn't show any fear. If you read through the Bible, about the only people that don't fall down in fear in front of an angel are the ladies. And I don't know why that is. Maybe you're just tougher than us guys. Maybe we're actually like, you know, nine-year-old wimps buried inside bearded bodies. I don't know. But she doesn't. And he just, this angel just shows up. Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Just shows up. You don't have any kids, but you're going to have a son. There's no indication that this lady had any prior knowledge. It wasn't like he sent a, a note. He didn't send her a Facebook message. Hey, coming by, important news, 2 p.m. Just shows up out of nowhere. You don't got any kids, you're going to. And look at her response. Or actually, the angel keeps talking here. Now, therefore, beware, I pray thee, and drink not 
wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So this angel just shows up, tells her she's going to have a child, but then goes on to give her some instructions. Okay? We all have studied and understand at least the basics of Samson was a Nazarite. Okay? According to Nazarite vow, we get some basics right in here. Um, he is, no razor shall come on his head. He's going to have long hair and more than likely a really long beard as he gets older. Um, no wine or strong drink. And the Bible also says here, and eat not any unclean thing. Okay, this was actually something that they should have been following anyways, but you also realize that they are in captivity to the Philistines. One of the main things that the Philistines regularly ate was pig, was pork. So if you're a captive, you're eating what you're given to eat. Are we okay? So this is going to have to take a little extra work on her part. And here's the intriguing part. The child, look at what it says here. Uh, the child, it's uh, verse 5, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. But these instructions so far are for who? Mom. Mom has to follow these instructions. She's not even pregnant yet. Because it says, you shall conceive. Hasn't happened yet, but you're going to have to follow a Nazarite vow prior to his birth. So let's actually do a little bit of digging on the Nazarite vow. Does anybody know where in your Bible the Nazarite vow is found? Somebody? I heard some mumbling, but that doesn't really help. It's in the book of Numbers. You are correct. Numbers chapter 6. We're going to actually just read through the Nazarite vow. Numbers chapter 6. Hey, that's one more person that got it right than I was expecting. So good job. All right, Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6, uh, the first 21 verses of this chapter, and we're going to actually go ahead and just kind of read all of them, break it all down here, are the Nazarite vow. And it's actually kind of intriguing here. Look at Numbers chapter 6 and verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord. So let's pause for a minute. This vow could be for men or women. And it says here, look, it says, When? Either man or woman shall separate themselves. This was typically by choice. You chose to take a Nazarite vow. Are we okay so far? I mean, the language is fairly clear on that. Look at verse 3. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes nor eat moist grapes or dried. So back in Judges, when we're kind of introduced to Samson's Nazarite vow that mom has to even keep during pregnancy, it just says drink not wine nor strong drink and eat not any unclean thing. This is giving us a little bit more detail here, which by the way, she would have had access to this scripture. These were written, these were in the tabernacle. If God told her to be a Nazarite, she could have gone to the priest and said, what exactly does that include? And could have gotten detail here. And look at this, it, no wine, and that includes, and the Bible gives some detail here. And by the way, this is where we know we can separate the term wine from alcohol. It says wine and strong drink. Wine meaning grape juice, okay? Something fresh here. Uh, strong drink. And it also includes no vinegar. Vinegar was a very regular cooking ingredient. How many of you use vinegar? Anybody in here like pickles? Congratulations, you like vinegar, okay? 
This includes none of that, and they can't have any form of liquor from any kind of grapes, and they can't eat moist, meaning fresh grapes, or dried, which we call... Somebody in here is like, wait, that's raisins? What? You just learned something new. This is including, so far, nothing from the grapevine. Are we okay? So this, the, the Nazarite vow actually is more detailed than just don't drink grape juice and alcohol. Hey, abstaining from alcohol is relatively easy. I'm 38 years in. I have no plans on changing that anytime soon. That's relatively easy. Avoiding all juice, all vinegar, and all fruit from this is a little more difficult. At Grandma Korea used to make this amazing fruit cake. I wouldn't have been able to eat that because it had raisins in it. So avoiding any oatmeal raisin cookies? Come on, like one of the best cookies in the history of the entire world? No go, can't have those, that's listed, okay? All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. This one's a little more interesting here. I had to do a little digging on this. I read multiple commentaries. I even checked on some, uh, some Jewish rabbi websites and things like that. This thought right here is nothing that is made of the vine tree goes beyond just grapes to anything that grows on a vine. Now, that is a human interpretation. And it was the idea of, Bible is a little generic here. Nothing that is made of the vine tree. So we're going to be way more specific than we need to be just to avoid any problems. Are we okay so far? The Bible tells us not to look at alcohol. Does literally looking at a glass of alcohol make you sin? No, but he's telling us to abstain from it completely so that we're not even tempted by it. So the human concept of avoid, nothing from the vine tree is anything. Any type of fruit or vegetable that grows on a vine, avoid it. By the way, this would include things like pumpkins, gourds, watermelons, all kinds of things like that would all be off because they grow on some form of a vine. Are we okay? So there's, there's some possible indication that they just kind of avoided all of that in order to remove themselves from any appearance of doing wrong. Are we okay so far? All right, look at verse five. In all the days of the vow of his separation, there shall, come no ra- or shall no razor come upon his head till the days be fulfilled in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. This was highly uncommon, especially for the men. For, for the ladies, this was no big deal because this was just every day. You had long hair. But for the guys, they actually kept their hair relatively short. Not quite, you know, shaved short, but they didn't have clippers like that. But they did keep their hair relatively short. But while they're in a Nazarite vow, they'd let their hair grow out. Think back to Samson. The Bible tells us here, for the child should be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. This kid's going to stand out because he's got long hair his whole life. Now, there are some that believe that Nazarites that had a lifelong vow, and we'll get to that in a moment, may have cut their hair about once a year. Okay? Uh, it was actually the year mom got sick. I grew out my beard for over 11 months. Anybody remember my homeless phase? It was really bad, okay? My beard grew down to about here in a year. Your hair can grow fairly long, anywhere between an eighth to a quarter of an inch per month. You do that for an entire year, hair like this could be easily this long or longer all over in a year. You're going to stand out in a culture that's got relatively short hair. Does that make sense? So that, that's kind of the point was your vow is not just an internal vow. People know you've made this vow. 
Uh, the Bible tells us when we go to fast, we're not supposed to tell everybody. Does anybody remember the group that told everybody they were fasting? The Pharisees, and Jesus condemned them for it repeatedly. Hey, I'm fasting, don't give me any food. I'm praying and talking to God, leave me alone. That's not what this is supposed to be. The Nazarite vow is different than that. There's supposed to be a physical separation. You're supposed to look different. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. As Christians, we're supposed to look different. Just going to plug that in there. All the days that he separated himself, verse 6, unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. And this is where things get a little bit unique. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his, uh, for his brother or for his sister when they die. Because the consecration of God is upon his head. He's not allowed to go anywhere near a dead body to the point where he's not even allowed to go to their funeral. If somebody you love dies while you're under a Nazarite vow, you're not allowed to grieve because the Jewish grieving process usually included weeping and touching the body. And you're not allowed to go anywhere near that. And it also included sackcloth, ashes. Sometimes they would shave their head in mourning. You're not allowed to do any of that stuff while you're under this vow. So when you're making this vow, this is of massive importance to God here. Look at verse uh, 8. All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. And if any man die very suddenly by him, and he hath defiled the head of his consecration, then he shall shave his head in the day of his cleansing on the seventh day, uh, shall he shave it. God even included a dis disclaimer in here. What happens if somebody accidentally dies while you're nearby? He even included that. God, God thinks things through. Sometimes we pray and we'll ask God, I don't know what your will is. Have you read the Bible lately? If the answer is no, you're never going to know God's will. You can't. Well, the Bible doesn't command me to read it every day. It says meditate on it day and night. You can't meditate on what you don't know. One of my snakes laid eggs in the last 48 hours. I went to bed at 2.30 this morning researching how to incubate eggs pr properly because I wasn't planning on this happening. I didn't think it had worked. I actually used this snake in a VBS a week ago, which was really stupid because she was massively pregnant and I didn't know it. Right? You think about what's on your mind, what's in your heart, and that's what you're going to spend time on. You need to know God's will. You need to know God's book. You don't know God's book, you're never going to find God's will. It is a light unto your path. Well, it can't light anything up if it's not on. Just thought I'd throw it out there. But I think it's pretty cool here that God even gave this little extra disclaimer, just in case something really weird happens while you're in a Nazarite vow. Here's what to do. Now, we're not going to read through the rest of this because I'm running out of time here. But at the very end of their Nazarite vow, they were supposed to offer a couple of offerings. They were supposed to offer a sin offering, which is kind of intriguing. The Bible does not give us any details or disclaimers as to why someone would take a Nazarite vow. There's no disclaimer. But the fact that you're supposed to offer a sin offering at the end of it gives at least the connotation, the implication that maybe this was a form of repentance for something you had done. Does that make some sense? Like, I did this wrong, and I feel like I need to, like, do something to make up for it. You ever, you ever do that before? I, I have identical twin daughters. I cannot tell you how many times one of them has gotten punished for something the other did because I couldn't separate who was who. 
Don't tell them, okay? They, they know. When that happens, I feel bad. And I'm like, okay, I got to make up for that because Callie got punished for something Paisley did and she didn't deserve. Do you, do you know where I'm going? So my thought is, this is Bishology. The fact that there's a sin offering at the end of this that maybe some of these people were making this vow because of something they'd done and it was a way to repent. You and I actually do fairly similar stuff. We come to the altar, God, I need you to forgive me for this. So what do we do? We get so far removed from whatever we did wrong that we can't go back to that again. We make a lifestyle change to accommodate the internal change. Are we okay? Because think about it. If these people consecrated their lives to the Lord in a Nazarite vow, you're going to walk away from that experience changed. Partially because everybody around you is going to know. One of the other things they had to do at the very end of this was men or women, whoever had made this, they shaved their head and threw that hair in the fire because it was a visible symbol that what was old is now torched, it's gone, and we're starting over. We do the same concept. Here's an intriguing note, and I have to stop here. We will finish this in two weeks. We have a special speaker next week, so you're going to have to sit on this for a little bit, okay? I want you to do some homework in your Bible this week and tell me how long the average Nazarite vow lasted. Now, we know Samson's is about to last for life because the Bible tells us that. It says, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. There is no end to that, is there? It's just not written in there. So those, again, this is verse 2 of chapter 6 of Numbers, when neither man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, how long did the average Nazarite vow last? That's your homework. You have two weeks to complete this. There will be a quiz. And if you fail, I get to slap you with a fish. Dear Lord, thank you for everything that you do for us. Lord, thank you for your word.